Welcome to the Big Box PC Game Collectors Podcast. In May of 2015, we were fortunate to be able to have a conversation with the one and only Josh Mandel. We discussed how he got his start, his time at Sierra Online, as well as Legend Entertainment, and what he's been doing recently. Here is that interview. And there's a question I have, Josh. Um, when did you join Sierra? I guess it was beginning of the 90s, but you will correct yes. me that second, I guess. Okay. But the question I have with that, and then talking about the best company or so, did you already know about that time what, what Sierra is like, like company-wise? Did you have an, an understanding so far? So how did you get in contact with Sierra? What was your opinion about Sierra? And does it mean anything back then already, or, or does it develop while you were, were joining them? Um, well, I, I started at Sierra in 1990, uh, April of 1990, and I was already a huge fan of Sierra. Actually, I, was a, I, I, I would be hard-pressed to think of a, a game company that um, I wasn't a fan of. I mean, I played all the SSI, the Gold Box games. Um, I loved Ultima 3. I probably spent a year with Ultima 3 uh, and another one with Ultima 4. Uh, but I was an uh, enormous fan of Sierra, and I remember um, at the time I, w I had a job in an ad agency. Uh, I would do copywriting during the day and um, comedy at night, and I remember when Space Quest Three was about ready to come out, and every day I would walk the half mile from work to, I think it was a Babbage's, uh, to see if Space Quest Three had got, had come in yet, and every day, you know, they knew me at the at the store, and they would say, you know, they'd see me walk in the door, and they'd say, no, nope, not today, maybe tomorrow, maybe Tuesday. Um, so yeah, I I was a huge fan, and and the way I got caught up with the company uh, was that I'd been beta testing, and I beta tested for Infocom. Uh, I actually beta tested a little bit for Surtech. Um, which hasn't been mentioned very, very much uh, in the years since it since it passed, um, and I wanted to uh, beta test for Sierra too because a I didn't want to have to pay for the games, and two I wanted to um, get them before anyone else got them, and three I wanted to see if I could have a little bit of influence on the way they turned out. So I was um, hot and heavy into CompuServe at the time, and I was uh, a sysop. Uh, there's an antiquated term for you. Um, I was a sysop on their gamers forum and their game publishers, or they called it game vendors forum, uh, and so on. And then one of the other sysops said, uh, yeah, there's this guy in the gamers forum, Garuka, you know Garuka, and I'm like, yeah, I know Garuka. She said, well, Garuka works for Sierra Online. He's a producer there. So I asked him if maybe they could use me as a beta tester, and and he said yes, and then it all it all derived from that. You said you beta tested for Surtech? What yes. games did you test? Um, I tested one game for them, and it was a text adventure, and I don't remember the name of it. But they put out a text adventure. So how did you move from uh, 
you uh, from beta uh, from beta testing to uh, to being more invo involved in the production of the games? How how did you make that jump? Well, um, I just I really threw myself into the beta testing like crazy. I mean, I I, I approached it as if it, it was my full time job, um, and I would I would write I would write out very detailed reports. I I I, I kept each each uh, entry in the beta test log to exactly what they wanted to know and not a lot of extra fluff um, uh, and I got my reports in fast and and one of I think the the big turning points was when I beta tested Codename Iceman uh, a game perhaps about <laughs> the least said the better um, but uh, I had encountered a crash bug in Codename Iceman, and I was living in Chicago at the time, and I I reported on this crash bug. They kept asking me questions about it, and I kept trying to help them duplicate it, and they could never duplicate it. Finally, one day, I get this call from a guy named Mark Hood, who I didn't know at the time, but he was he was um, you know big he was big at Sierra, and um, he said, "All right." the only way we're going to determine this crash bug is to get you to play the game with us from the start until you encounter it and it took Codename Iceman was a was a difficult game to get oh yes um, it was a really difficult thank you Pascal uh, it was a really difficult game to get through so it took maybe five or six hours uh, to get to the point in the game where I was getting that crash bug and I was on the phone with Mark Hood telling him everything I was doing you know everything I was typing in and every place I was walking and then finally after five or six hours I got the crash bug and I said there and he said oh, I got it so that, that was a golden moment in my young life so eventually, after maybe about a year and a half of beta testing, uh, Garuka called me and he said, you know, I am the producer for every game that we're putting out, and we've got more than a dozen games in the pipeline, and I'm producing all of them, and it's too much for me. Would you be interested in coming here and being a junior producer for us? At first I thought, there is no way I'm moving out to the middle of nowhere in California where I know nobody would take a big pay cut, wouldn't be able to do comedy anymore or anything um, to be a producer, which I really didn't have any interest in being a producer. But then I went out there for the interview and I saw what Corey and Lori were doing on the next Quest for Glory and I saw what... Um, Mark Crow and Scott Murphy were doing on Space Quest 4 and I saw King's Quest 5 in production and I was so blown away with everything about the company. Ken, uh, who was so friendly, Ken, when I, when I drove up to the building, Ken came out of the building to, to meet me and shake my hand and I didn't even recognize him at first. Uh, I was just so blown away by everything, by the company, by uh, Oakhurst and the Yosemite area, which I had never been to, uh, the people in the town. By the time the interview was over and I went back to Chicago, I thought, well, I'm, I'm taking this job. And maybe it will advance from uh, junior producer 
to something in the writing or design area because that's what I really wanted to do. But but does does being a producer, junior producer, mean you have to know development skills like programming and so? And if yes, where did you have no no? No, I had no programming skills at all. I didn't know. The last programming I had done was in high school doing little basic uh, little basic routines. No, being a producer meant uh, more like being a go-between between, between um, the, the main office, you know, Ken and the bean counters uh, and the creative people and making sure that the game was on schedule and on budget and all those uh, tasks that um, I, I was not set up for, had never done, knew nothing about, and really didn't have any interest in. So what, was the what were the first titles you got to take that particularly thankless role on? I'm looking at a cheat sheet now, and I can see that you were involved in one of the Thexter games as a producer, which I, I presume can't have been, uh, although I personally enjoy Thexter Thex uh, games, it can't have been a particularly prestigious role, I assume. No, the, the, uh, working on the Japanese games was a whole other uh, area that was very difficult for me because I had to interface with the game arts people in Japan and yeah, there are a lot of rules and customs around dealing with business uh, in Japan and I didn't know any of them uh, you know and I had to call them sometimes at four in the morning so I wasn't really awake uh, so yeah Thexter 2 um, but really the first project that they handed me when I walked in the door was the remake of King's Quest 1 that was the very first project they told me about it, it was it was not terrible at all. We had a couple of programmers assigned to it, uh, Randy and Gary, and um, I think they were sort of tired of working on it, uh, but uh, they had a good attitude. They came up with um, a vertical room change, a vertical scrolling room change that no one had done before. We used that for the Beanstalk, and no other game had, had had that. I think we also... They also came up with the um, the horizontal scrolling. I think uh, that King's Quest was the first one to have it, and then all the other games wanted it. But in the artwork, we made all of the, the rooms, or as many as possible, uh, contiguous, so that when you got the scrolling room change, it would actually look, uh, look decent. Roberta was excellent uh, to work with because... I said to her, look, the text in the original King's Quest was really, really sparse, and it didn't really come across like you were being told or being involved in a fairy tale. It was very utilitarian. Would you mind if I just punched it up a little? And she said, sure, go, go for it. Anything you want, just run it by me first. And I changed every word of it. Only remember her uh, taking out or changing either one or two things that I wrote, everything else she left in place. She's very flexible. I think she was probably distracted because she was really, really cranking on King's Quest V at the time. But um, no, I thought it was a very pleasant experience, and um, it was, it was uh, a very good introduction to the way that they did things at Sierra. So uh, it served a good purpose for me uh, as well. As you mentioned King's Quest V, um, 
you did you did some voice acting for the CD for the CD version, as I recall. <laughs> well, I did some voices for it. I don't know if you would call it acting. <laughs> well, the the acting was, and I and I've I've said this before, so I don't I don't feel the proper amount of shame saying it again. The problem was was that I I came from a classically trained acting background, and that was not what. Roberta and Mark Siebert really wanted. They wanted something that was a lot more like a cartoon character, and they would say to me over and over, as, as I would try to bring some variation, um, bring him him down so that he wasn't always like this. Um, I tried to make him a little more uh, realistic, and sometimes tired, and sometimes angry, and so on. And they had to keep telling me no. No, bad Josh. King Graham is always buff. He is never tired. He is never angry. He's never upset. He he is never anything but buff. So that's the way it all came out. And um, you know, Richard Aronson, who played uh, Cedric, uh, and I uh, laughed for many years about. Um, the way the voice acting went in King's Quest Five. <laughs> very much the opposite to the way people uh, people kind of have expectations of voice acting now. But it, you you've got a cult following because you've reprised that role several times, haven't you? Right. Yes, in some of the uh, some of the remakes, also in like uh, I think King's Quest Six, uh, I may have done a few lines. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of funny. I think more people know me as the voice of King Graham than know me for anything else I've done in my career. And because I am not particularly proud of that work, it it is a little bit unsettling. But but how how did that happen? I mean how did they choose you? Is it was it normal that Sarah employees were casting for voices or how did that happen? Yes, back then um, we couldn't we didn't really have the budget uh, to hire professional actors. Uh, we didn't have a professional studio. We only had our little music studio that we rigged up to do voices. And I think the only voices probably we had recorded prior to King's Quest V were the voices for Jones in the Fast Lane, uh, which we had also done uh, video capture for of some of us talking and walking and things like that. I just I want to say this is a little bit off topic, but I love this story. Um, on King's Quest One, uh, one of the scenes I was rewriting was the the very final scene where I think his name was King Edward, where King Edward dies, and that was like the last scene. In fact, I think if you play the very original King's Quest, he like dies on the floor and you sit in the throne and and then the credits roll. It's it's really cut and dry. Um, so I wanted I wanted to make it a little more interesting. And King's Quest Four, at the time that I was working on King's Quest One, King's Quest Four was the game that had most recently come out in the series. And the Magic Mirror played a really big part in King's Quest Four. And that's one of the treasures that you have to find in King's Quest One. And so you return to King Edward with the mirror and the chest and uh, and so on, the, all the treasures that you found. And so with King Edward's dying breath uh, 
in the in the version I wrote that Roberta made me take out, um, I had King Edward say, "I think the mirror should go over there on that wall," and then he dies. <laughs> and Roberta said, "I think if he's dying, his final words are not going to be interior." Decorating tips. <laughs> and, and I said, I said he doesn't he doesn't know that's going to be his final words. You know, you know, you don't know that kind of thing. But you know, I couldn't I couldn't really defend it. She had been so gracious about about all the other changes, and I knew when I wrote it that it was it was really a long shot anyway. But I love those stories. I love. Hearing those insider tales from, from now, what year was this? What what year are we talking? This would have been 1990. What was the first project you got actually got your full creative put a creative clause on as it were, as it were? What was the first, what, what point did you move from sort of production to having a greater influence on design or co-designing as titles? Um, on on design, it would probably be Freddie Farkas. Uh, you know, there there were a lot of little tidbits I had done, like on Space Quest Four, uh, like the the um, the bargain bin box in Space Quest Four, uh, and some other scenes in that in that game. But that was that was not design; that was just writing. It it would have been Freddie Farkas, and also uh, a little bit on Lorbo Two, uh, Dagger of Amon Ra. Now that was. That was very fundamentally a Bruce Balfour game, um, not a Roberta I, game. I did it uh, yeah. all that game. There it is. Oh, we had so much fun working on that game. Um, Bruce and uh, Lorelai Shannon uh, and, uh, and myself, and maybe to a lesser extent, um, I think Jane may have had something, uh, some input on that game. But, you know, Bruce was was so ready to let us do anything uh, kooky and morbid. Um, so he had the right he had the right staff uh, working. The walking on meat was amazing. I have no idea who, who might have been responsible for that, but I loved the walking meat. I think that was probably Lorelei. But uh, what had happened originally was that uh, way back and now I'm talking very end of 1990, maybe beginning of 91, Roberta had asked me to do uh, Dagger of Amun-Ra because, well, at the time it wasn't Dagger of Amun-Ra, it was just, you know, Lorbo 2, whatever it's going to be, because uh, we had had such a good experience working together on King's Quest. Um, I knew that I wasn't the right person to, to work on Dagger of Amun-Ra because I had no experience with murder mysteries. And Bruce was already working for the company, and Bruce did have experience on them. But I had gotten as far as writing um, a story brief for the, the second Laura Bow. Uh, it was like maybe half a page uh, about the setting and the the murder, uh, uh, the whole framing. Uh, so I wrote that, and that's what Bruce got uh, from Roberta. Roberta said, here, this is what we want. Josh has already written this. This is the story we want. But, you know, it required a ton of expansion and fleshing out, and that's all stuff that Bruce did. And I thought he did a fabulous job with it, much better than I ever could have. 
Um, right. What was what was your favourite title that you were involved with uh, while you were at Sierra? Oh, I think that would be Freddie, uh, Freddie Farkas. I I put so much work into that, and and the team that we had on that was was so close. Uh, we went skydiving together. We went to a dude ranch together. This isn't uh, another like depressing story, is it? No, well, I don't have anything depressing about this uh, part of the. Everybody in the skydiving turned out okay. Yes. Yes. All right, just making sure. Yes. Um, the people who went, not everybody went. Al did not go, uh, for instance. But um, no, it was all. It was a very tight knit group. We worked crazy, crazy hours. Uh, the programmers did a lot of things that, at the beginning of development, they were sure we would never be able to do. They never thought they would be able to synchronize a bouncing ball on screen with sound blaster music, for instance, for the ballads uh, at the beginning and the end, the bouncing ball. Um, the workbench in Freddy's pharmacy and back uh, with all the little bottles you could take and move around. Uh, that required so much memory, so much more memory than any Sierra game had ever required that that room was crashing right up until the last day or so of development. Um, you know, they they did amazing things. The artwork, that main Main Street scroller uh, that Brandon knows I, I keep trying to find some way to either get to him or or digitize. You know, that was beautiful, immense piece of artwork, much bigger than anything Sierra had ever done. Uh, the talkers uh, that Ruben Huante did uh, for that game, some of them, they looked like they were straight out of Don Martin uh, and Mad Magazine. They were so cool. Um, just and, and most of all, I think, and, and working with Al, which was easy and fun, and we saw eye to eye on on a lot more than we disagreed on. And then the culmination was when I was standing on this little uh, second floor ledge overlooking the production area, and I was seeing the boxes uh, being packed uh, and then shrink wrapped and being put in these cartons. And it was such a mixture of relief and total dread because I, I, you know, I thought, wow, a week from now there are going to be people out there on CompuServe and elsewhere playing this game and um, is it going to crash for everyone? Are they going to loathe it? Uh, are they going to say it was a waste of money? Was this a year and a half of my life wasted? It was, it was just the most amazing moment and I've never really felt that kind of intensity uh, uh, on any other project that I've worked on. So, yeah, Freddie. In the end, Freddie Farkas was actually, well, I can only speak for the UK and Greek magazines, but it was incredibly well received, well received in Europe, as I recall. I, I assume that was kind of the same uh, Americans. Is that, was, that, was that the case for you guys too? I remember it getting good reviews. Computer Gaming World 
uh, really liked it a lot. That was Charles Ardai, uh, who wrote that review. And I was so glad because he had always been my favorite reviewer uh, in that magazine. And he really liked it. He gave it like either four or four and a half stars. And years and years later, I guess it would have been four or five years later, when Callahan's Cross Time Saloon came out, he reviewed that and he said, this is the funniest game since Freddy Farkas Frontier Pharmacist. And I was like, oh, my God, I win. He I likes win. you. He really yeah. likes you. <laughs> but um, the, the reception was good, but it was not great. Um, it was at least a year before it sold enough copies to even justify doing a CD-ROM version. You know, it did not sell big numbers right away, but... Uh, it sold steadily. Westerns were never perceived as a genre that people were dying to see turned into an adventure game. So it was kind of a risk on that uh, on that count, I guess. Uh, since you mentioned it, I suppose this would be an obvious time to uh, to ha uh, have a, uh, to cast a thought on Callahan's in your work and your other work with Legend. Um, would you mind? Not at all. Uh, uh, because I have to agree with Stuart that Legend is one of the best computer game companies there ever was. And that was because of Bob Bates and, and Mike Verdu, uh, whose design sensibilities were so advanced from, uh, from anything that Sierra had done. I, I think I learned more in the, in the year or so that I worked at Legend than, than in the four or five years I worked at Sierra. Uh, just about what makes for good design. Um, they originally had asked me to do a game based on David Edding's Belgariad, and that wasn't really my genre, but I read all the books at the time that were in the, in the Belgariad series, and I developed a, a design proposal that was fairly detailed, and they took it to Edding's, and he didn't even read it. He said, I don't, he, I mean, he was already pretty old at the time, and he said, he said, I don't want teenagers running around my universe killing each other and he shooting and stabbing so disappointed each other. by me. Because I was, I was exactly that sort of teenager when I got into his, <laughs> into his universe. I'm glad I knew nothing about the author, because I was disappointed in his work later, but the Belgariad was magical for me. Legend was kind of known for those those light those book licenses, though. Yes, uh, pretty much entirely at that point, except for what um, Steve Moretzky was doing for Legend, because he was doing things like um, uh, spell casting, the spell casting Eric series. Eric Unready, as right. well. Well, Eric was um, right. That was original. That was Bob's idea, uh, and Mission Critical as well. That was Mike's. But uh, so they they said to me, if you could choose any two writers to once once David Eddings had passed on the Belgariad. See, he only knew from Nintendo. So when they said they were going to make a computer game based on his world, I guess I guess he sort of envisioned uh, Metroid or something. But uh, they said any any name any two writers uh, who actively are being published. I said Spider Robinson and Dean Koontz. And they said, well, we have, we have ties that can get us in with Spider Robinson. And he was interested, and I was thrilled because I adored the books. 
I threw myself into that game like I had in Freddy, and I had I was in a, a deep deep depression at the time, and I set myself up in my home with a sky chair, which is like a big hanging chair, hangs from the ceiling like a sling, and I would sit in that sling for for twelve hours at a at a at a pop just writing that game and it's uh, it's the one that's closest to my heart in terms of the sense of humor uh, it's a lot closer to my preferred sense of humor than than Freddie was frankly Fred, Freddie was a little a little too scatological but I loved working on Callahan's and I was pretty happy with the outcome like game developers around like Sierra offices and stuff what games did they play in their spare time if they had any Oh yeah, um, there was a lot of Doom. They played a lot of Doom. There was a lot of network, you know. They played a lot of network uh, first-person shooters. So they, didn't play Sierra, they didn't play Sierra games, that's for sure. <laughs> they even some of them played Lucas games. I played Lucas games. What? Yeah, it's true. They they always oh, kind of the well. I don't think we ever really thought of them as the enemy because we were we were turning out a different product from them. They, you know, they were turning out these games at a very leisurely pace, and they didn't have to worry about budgets, and they certainly didn't have to worry about recording studios or voice talent. Um, so you know, they were turning out these sort of Cadillac games, um, and we were turning out uh, much. Uh, greater quantity of games. We were we were feeding the beast. You know, adventure gamers would have starved on a diet of Lucas games, and and but they were good quality. Uh, Sierra's games were not as tightly designed, were not as tightly programmed, um, and so on. But uh, we kept them coming at a time when people had a voracious appetite. You them. really got your money's worth as well. I mean, Sierra uh, uh, completing most Sierra games was a, it was a significant it was a significant chunk of time. Even if you even if you sat down every every evening to do it, that that was actually my fa my family hobby. We'd sit down with my uh, my uh, my mum was a programmer, and we and she got me into computing partly by the use of adventure games. And we would sit down and we would play our way through and uh, through uh, through Sierra games, and they lasted. Um, King's Quest V was particularly brutal in that respect, as I recall. But um, yeah. Dagger of Dagger of for example, with its incredibly hard ending, you, you had that level, you had that level of challenge that uh, I think is kind of representative of old games, that particularly those that predate internet um, internet solutions. Right. Um, right. Because now you've got an expectation there'll be a hint button in a game to help you through, and because games are a little bit cheaper relative to income, relative to income, I think. Um, right. You, uh, you've, uh, uh, they tend, they can be shorter. Um, on the subject of modern games, you recently uh, worked with Al Lowe on the Legacy Larry Reloaded to some, uh, to some extent, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You don't have to tell us if you don't want to. Um, I worked really hard on that game. Al and I had a really good time on it together. We we had fun doing recording the voices. 
everything else about it was uh, a living nightmare. And um, I think it will be a long time before I do a Kickstarter again. Uh, man, that that just just doing the Kickstarter was uh, uh, it really takes it out of you. Um, you know, I don't I don't know if any of you have participated in a Kickstarter, but it's like it's like around the clock servicing. Um, and you know, there were there were other problems that have been fairly well publicized about the people behind the scenes of the Larry remake. And I, I do not want to rehash it here, um, mostly because I'll start getting um, uh, vicious emails. So, uh, <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna bunt on this one. Yeah, and, and not only about the the Larry Reloaded. No, what I really mad about is the Faster Mud thing because after Larry Reloaded, you worked on on Faster Mud, and I really enjoyed that game a lot. It was an episodic title. I don't like episodic titles for one reason, and this is the one which happened. Sometimes the story won't continue, no, there will be no chapter two, I guess, and uh, that's really a, a, a terrible thing, because I enjoyed it a lot. It was a nice homage to the old games, um, It nice old school graphics, cool cool riddles and puzzles, some really challenging ones, and yeah, but sadly, as we know, there won't be an episode two, I guess. Well, there might be. Um... Because the developers, I mean, they have an episode two. Uh, it's a matter of getting the money together uh, and finding a publisher uh, to do it. But um, they want to do it. We're still in touch. Uh, every few months we talk. I ask them if they've gotten any closer to finding a publisher, and they say no. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's not going to happen soon, but... You know, the will is still there. We just need to find a way. You kind of, I guess, saw the sort of rise and fall and flatline and sort of the inklings of the re-rise of adventure, of adventure games, I guess. Um, uh, what was the perspective on that so from, from inside the industry? Because uh, from out... Uh, from outside, I mean, it was before I it was before I got into into journalism or anything, but but the media were clanging the bell of doom long before the and long before the gamers I knew uh, I knew were, and I think that kind of had a neg had a negative impact on the genre as a whole. I mean, the fact that we were all uh, that we inc uh, including those who, especially those who made a living from writing, like shooting each other in the head in doom, probably didn't help. But uh, what did it look like from the inside? Uh, in well, at the time, um, I found it very depressing and sad to watch. In in the intervening years, I've come to feel that the death of the adventure game, which I guess wasn't really a death, it was more like a, a coma, was the moment that the board of directors at Sierra Online said to Ken, we no longer trust you. We're bringing in, um, we're bringing in other people to run the company. I think that single decision is is what what really caused the downfall of adventure games for so long. Because Sierra was the protector 
of the adventure game. Sierra kept adventure games flowing when no one else was keeping them flowing. Um, they appealed to traditional gamers and as soon as the board of directors made that decision suddenly Sierra was no longer about the games it was about the money and while that had always been a factor at Sierra it was never the overriding factor and then all of a sudden one day it was the overriding factor and the kind of games we do we 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 did went out the window and suddenly the um, what we considered decent sales of a game maybe 200,000 units to, to 500,000 units suddenly that was nowhere near what they wanted they wanted numbers like mist so they wanted millions and millions of units sold uh, and you know it was impossible for Sierra to keep doing what it was what it was best at doing and and make those kinds of numbers and since they were the the last real guardians of the adventure game once they fell uh, the whole the whole genre fell so that's that's my perspective now back then it was um, terrifying and upsetting and I couldn't really be a part of what was happening at Sierra anymore because it wasn't it wasn't what had made the company so great in the first place it, 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 that sort of um, aesthetic was no longer valued there and it, it was um, it was a huge shame movies and games have, have almost have a parallel situation because what ends up happening in film is we'll have a Titanic right and or a even better example would be Avatar, which makes like two and a half billion dollars. All of a sudden, the top brass in Hollywood will only accept movies that make two and a half billion dollars. Um, so it's almost like this this graduating scale of success. And what no one realizes is, is if you make a movie that or a game, because we're talking about games here, but if you make a movie that's um, uh, ten million dollar budget and you make a hundred million bucks on it, you made a huge profit. You know, I don't know why Hollywood never figures that out, but gaming is sort of the same situation where um, I don't think Myst had a very big production budget because um, there's only two guys that made that game, as I recall, and they sold millions and millions of units, so they had a huge profit margin. Well, if you just you keep the uh, budget low and sell 200,000 units, you make, can make a decent amount of money making games, but all of a sudden the... the level for success is set way too high, you know. And right, a, right. I don't know what, why that's such a thing, but it just happens. I think yeah. that's changing somewhat. I mean, that's kind of the more optimistic note. That's changing somewhat with the, uh, um, with the current sort of crop of Small of smaller companies, smaller companies doing smaller things. You're you're nodding there really enthusiastically, Josh. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's that's. That's the resurgence. It's the resurgence of the creativity and the willingness of of some publishers to accept the kind of arrangement that we're talking about. Where yes, you don't sell that many games, but um, your expenses are are low, so uh, you end up making a really nice profit anyway. So it's very um, 
it, it gives me cause for optimism where I, I had none for, for a lot of the last 20 years. So I am enthusiastic about it, yeah. Were you still still working for Sierra at the time when they were sold? I mean, they, I guess they, they, were, they were sold in 96 or so, Ken left Sierra in 97. I guess your last projects were 95 with, with Space Quest 6 and other titles? Yes, I left, uh, I left just before, uh, in late 94. So, you, so you, they, had not, they had not been sold yet, but um, they, you know, there, were, there was talk about it in the halls, and it was going to happen. It was just a matter of when, not if. Well, what do you play at the moment, at the moment if, you're, if you're playing anything? Um... Actually, lately, like for the last six months to a year, and I have a hard time admitting this, I've been playing a lot of hidden object games. They're very because, soothing. <laughs> well, no, not because they're soothing, but because I really, really, really want to do a parody of hidden object games. Um, they're all so identical. They're all um, female detective is called out in the middle of a rainy night to a broken down asylum slash um, cemetery. Hopefully, uh, sensible I'm sorry, what? Totally sensible places to go on a rainy night. Yes, oh yeah, of course. And they always wreck their car right at the fence, right at the front gate, uh, <laughs> so that you have to you know, go into your, your glove compartment, uh, your glove box, uh, to find important things. I so want to do a parody of these games, so I've been playing them and making notes about ways I would like to twist them um, into uh, obscene and unexpected ways. Well, I guess, what are your big influences, not only in gaming, but also I know other media tend to feed, in, uh, feed into a lot, uh, a lot of game developers. So, yeah, what are your influences, just generally speaking? What oh, do you my, love? My biggest influence in everything I write, um, whether I'm aware of it or not, turns out to be Mad Magazine. Uh, I read so much Mad Magazine when I was a kid. Uh, they were really instrumental in developing my sense of humor. And even now when I write things, um, there are little references, there is a rhythm, there is just a, a, a sensibility that is like right out of the pages of Mad, say, um, 19, 19 55 to 1970 maybe so that was my biggest influence and and other other comedians mostly as well uh, people whose names you you may were very well never have heard uh, Stan Freeberg uh, Bob and Ray uh, Mike Nichols and Elaine May uh, a lot of oh Bob Newhart um, you know a lot of these comics were were people that uh, I listened to incessantly when I was a kid and when I was a teenager and uh, right up until the time I started doing comedy myself and didn't have time uh, to listen to much of anything anymore. Um, and all, all those flavors still come out in everything I write, plus a little bit of Spider Robinson. You mentioned so a lot of, uh, you, sorry, go ahead Pascal. Yeah, I would really like to know what what is a, 
someone like Josh Mendel doing today? So what, what are you doing for a living? Do you still need to do something for a living because you earn millions and billions out of King's Quest V voice acting career and stuff? But is there, are you still, uh, if you, uh, I guess, if you me, do yeah. anything, I guess it's just for a hobby that you have to do something and your wife doesn't get bored by you or something like that, but what what is it? Is it gaming? <laughs> are you in, involved in, in that or what, what is it? Any projects you're working on, top secret and stuff like that? I, I just want to make it clear, I was never a contract designer for Sierra. It was the contract designers who were able to build houses uh, on the strength of their royalties, to buy cars, uh, that kind of thing. I was paid uh, a salary, and so once the game hit the stands, I saw no money from any game I've ever worked on. Uh, so uh, I do still work. My wife, fortunately, has a has a very good job, so there is not a lot of pressure on me to work. But I like to work. Uh, right now, uh, I am editing and rewriting dialogue for an upcoming mobile uh, CRPG called Ember. That's coming from a company called Enfusion. Uh, they're the developer. I worked with them on on Larry, the Larry Reloaded. Uh, I've worked with them on a lot of games in the last, I don't know, 12, 15 years. So now they have this great game coming out, and um, they wrote volumes and volumes of placeholder text. So I'm going through it and actually trying to to give the characters some uh, differentiation, uh, some humor, but not too much. So I'm doing that. Uh, I'm also getting a new business up and running because ever since I was 11 years old, I've twisted balloons, and I really enjoy it. I know this sounds really off the wall, but <laughs> I'm starting a balloon twisting business later this year, and so I, I'm practicing that. In fact, for... Um, I think it was uh, the uh, this website Adventure Gamers. Uh, in my Christmas video, they they assemble a Christmas video every year. I think I twisted Rosella and the whale's tongue. So if you go to Adventure Gamers and you look up their 2014 Christmas video, you can see me twisting a balloon version of Rosella and a balloon version of the whale tongue and trying to get her to climb up it and stay and she keeps falling off of it. Yes, there's this whole unexplored uh, area uh, that is the intersection of computer adventure games and balloon twisting and I am going to make millions of dollars exploiting that underserved niche. That's what they say about finding your niche. Do you still do stand-up? No. No, um, my partner, I, I loved doing stand-up with my partner, and once she quit uh, to, have, to have babies, um, I never, uh, I tried it again a few times, and it just wasn't nearly as enjoyable for me. Uh, in fact, one of the final shows that I ever did with her was at the 1990 Christmas party at Sierra Online. They they flew my partner to to uh, out to California so that we could entertain at the Christmas party. I don't know what they were expecting, but I think they got something other than 
than what they were expecting, but it was great because because Ken approached me right after we got off stage and he said, you're an entertaining kind of guy, you should be designing these games. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I don't do stand-up anymore, but I still write a lot of comedy. Through the benefit of your experience, and I know the industry's changed now relative, relative to then, but on the other hand, you got to experience Kickstarter joy. What what guidance would you would you give to people looking to looking to get into uh, the glamorous and highly paid world of adventure game? <laughs> I'm sorry, I cracked me up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, boy, I I would say take theater classes, uh, because a game designer, especially an adventure game designer, is in essence uh, a playwright uh, and a director. Uh, and you have to have those skills, especially if you want to do something that is either a comedy or a serious drama. Uh, you have to know uh, blocking. You have to know timing. Um, these are all very theatrical skills. And I, I certainly found that, that theater training served me really well uh, in my time in the industry. So even if even if you know you're not interested in in a broader sense just in terms of learning a few things that are going to be valuable uh, when you craft an adventure game uh, it's a it's a fantastic resource and something everyone should try that's like uh, that's actually not something I'd heard before but that does that does make a great a uh, great deal of sense yeah <laughs> it really illuminates like you know um, I don't want to get political or anything, but public schools, especially in the United States, I don't know if it's the same way in Europe, but are like hacking and slashing um, theater classes, you know, art education, and all these things that, that on the surface no one thinks are, are useful, but, um, you know, on the underpinnings, these are all extremely useful skills for um, professionals in, in the real world. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, and uh, having having some background in art uh, for me that would have been very valuable. I didn't have much of a background in 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 drawing or painting or anything like that. Um, composition, um, things like that. That would have have been a great asset. Uh, and the same thing with music as well. And, you know, um, I had to put a lot of trust in the composers that I worked with all throughout my career because I did not have the knowledge uh, that would have um, that would have helped me so you know I yeah I had the theater training but more background in art and music um, would have helped a great deal Thanks for listening to the Big Box PC Game Collectors Podcast. You can find us on Facebook. You can also watch the original video version of this podcast on our YouTube channel, which includes the show and tell segments.